Hey everyone, welcome to episode 4 of the Lonely Mountain Mystics podcast. This week we're going to be talking about the Bible. And before we get started, I just want to mention briefly that at some point we're going to be talking about the topic of biblical inerrancy. Now, if you don't know what that is, don't worry, because we explain it. But if you do know what that is, then there's a good chance you already have a strong opinion on the subject. I just want to say that if we disagree, that's okay. We can still love each other. Disagreement is no reason to stop being in community, and it's every reason to start a conversation. So on that note, just a quick reminder that we would love to hear from you if you have thoughts on this topic or others. So feel free to reach out either via email, Twitter, the website, or the Patreon. And the response to Patreon has been so generous so far. I just want to shout out to our patrons for supporting. Thank you all so much. Lastly, if you do enjoy the podcast, leaving a review is a free and quick way to help others find us, especially on Apple Podcasts. All right, let's talk about the Bible. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to talk about the Bible today. 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 The... Everybody now. <laughs> B-I-B-L-E. B-I-B-L-E. Yes, yes, that's the, the book for me. You're not singing it. Right? Yeah, 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 we don't have a microphone. Oh, God. B-I-B-L-E. Hey. Hey. That was special. That's a wrap. That was special. Episode done. Um, Wow. I have I don't even know where to go from there. I mean, you had good questions. I did have good. Okay, all right. Let's start there. We'll dive into some questions. I do have some questions about the Bible and how we're looking at the Bible, thinking of the Bible, using the Bible. The first question is a fun one. What is the Bible? Who wants to go first? So I'm trying to remember who it was that I'm about to steal this from. But I think it might have been Mike McCarg or AKA Science Mike. And I think he was probably quoting somebody else. But the, the Bible is a library of artistically written spiritual discussions. Definitely isn't a quote of his. And I definitely did a lot of summing up and a lot of liberty with it. But I'm stealing the ideas that he put forth because he says it very succinctly. But yeah, it's an artistic library collection of spiritual discussions, in my opinion. Cool. Will. I think the way that I would describe it now is it's a collection of stories that depict what people think the divine was like. I recently was speaking with some friends who have absolutely no interest in religion at all. But they had found out, as people tend to find out, that I used to be a pastor. And so we were, they were talking about, like, they're like, wait, do you, like, believe the Bible? And I was like, well, I'll put it this way. I think it's a group, I think it's a collection of stories that, like, written by specific people who are documenting what they think God is like. And the response that I got from one of them was like, oh, I've, I could, I could be down with that. So you don't believe it's like literally true. Like you don't think like God wrote it. And I was like, no, not, (laughs) not so much. (laughs) I used to, but not anymore. Yeah. I think, um, One of the most interesting ways that I think about the Bible now is as a record of evolving human consciousness. So I I agree with what you're saying, Will, as far as, yeah, it's a record of how people have thought about God 
and Devin as well. It's a library of books. Different kinds of genres are included. But I think one of the one of the things for me that's also really interesting is to look at the Bible as a movement forward, as a process of people waking up to something. So there's all kinds of ways that you can watch this happen. You know, at the early parts of the Bible, it starts out with a very tribal mindset. Okay, so because the whole world is tribal at that point. And the message that's being given, you know, to God's people, quote unquote, at that time is, look, it's not all about you and your tribe, but you're the tribe that exists to be a blessing to all the other tribes. So it's basically this one tribe is waking up to a more, to a wider consciousness that it's not all about our tribe. It's, it's bigger than that. And then you watch that keep evolving to the point where, you know, then Jesus comes on the scene and we're asked to go further, include your enemies, love those who hate you. So I think for me, I love looking at the Bible as a record of watching human consciousness evolve. And again, for those who listen back to that God episode, seeing God as someone who is up ahead of us, calling us forward. I think it's interesting to look at the Bible through through that lens. I think the the biggest mind-blowing moment I had realizing that this happens all over the place in the Bible is when Jesus in Luke 4 reads from a scripture in Isaiah and he just literally leaves a big part out. Like he just cuts it right off. So I'm going to read it to you. So the the scripture in Isaiah says this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. That's what Isaiah 61 says. But Jesus gets to the time gets to the phrase, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and he just rolls the scroll up and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he basically omits, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies on purpose. So you see, like, that to me was um, just an incredible example of, no, the Bible is not like one coherent document, like transmitted from a divine being to, to human brains. No, the, it, the whole point is, it's like revision after revision after revision. It's like a record of our growth. I love what you're talking about, about that it was this evolving discussion. In our Western society, we have this idea that the words are very black and white, right or wrong. And when you look at Scripture itself, Scripture does not seem to feel that way about itself. And that was something that as I've grown to experience the artistic nature of it, grown to experience how it is self-critical and self-evaluating, it's given me a lot more freedom in how I look at it and how I interpret it, and it's become more relational. So to me, the Bible is no longer this book that is filled with facts that I have to 100% adhere to. It's a conversation I now get to be a part of and no longer need to feel guilty for wanting to be a part of it. Cool. Yeah, when I think about the Bible, you know, the term God's Word comes up a whole bunch. And so I was thinking on that, and I think 
that the description that I like the best is maybe that it's God's word, but in human words. And that kind of goes along with Andy with what you were saying. It's right. It's it's a revelation or it's revealing maybe who God is or or who the writers believe God to be. And over time, you see that progression happening, right? It's definitely, it's a collection of stories, songs, and poetry about encounters and experiences of the divine. I think it's written by people in a specific time and place, and it's reflective of their understanding when it was written in the same way that our understanding is reflected when we read it. And importantly, the Bible is not the bedrock of my faith. I don't believe it can support that weight. I think it's more of just like a signpost pointing in a direction. That's an interesting point to bring up. I know it's the, it's become the bedrock of faith for a lot of people. Uh, It's especially like when you start throwing around like the term, like the, the, the word of God um, and we'll just bracket out inerrancy and truthfulness. Like, well, that, that'll be later that we'll talk about that. But I remember when I was, uh, when I was in college uh, I remember listening to this speaker at a conference that I was at where uh, this is this is a relatively conservative like conference that I was working for at the time and there was a speaker that came up and said like the Bible's not the word of God like the Jesus is the word of God like the embodiment of God like what God wants to communicate to people is embodied in in Jesus who is dynamic we tend to see the Bible as static and so we we're like focusing on the wrong thing. And I remember thinking, because I had heard that before in class, and I remember thinking that that was super bold and probably risky. I don't know what happened to that person. They're probably fine. They probably had a few angry emails and maybe might not have been invited back to speak again. But yeah, I, I remember I remember thinking that that was, that was a big shift for me in my thinking was no longer using the Bible as the litmus test for determining whether something is useful or true. Because when you get down to the heart of Christianity, the Bible is, I think, at most a signpost, like exactly like what you were saying, Ben. And that's how that, that's how that evolution began for me, was thinking like that. I really love that you brought up the importance of what it would have meant to the audience at the time framing it in the cultural context that it was set in because the more i can understand what would the audience have thought about these words what would it have meant in their world in their time frame the more i can understand about that the more interesting it becomes because i i mean i've heard i think it's rob bell who points out in his book right towards the beginning of it as members of a society that is the biggest military superpower in the world, there's a chance we might be missing some of the themes of a book written by a group of people who were oppressed and enslaved, right? Like, you know what I mean? Or even, you know, the people, even up to the New Testament, like after all that is over, you're still from the perspective of these people who are incredibly oppressed by a Roman Empire. So there's a good chance that like the things that are really meaningful to that audience, like we're missing if we're not taking the time to understand what these things mean. I mean, even terms like um, the term son of God, 
was incredibly political because that was a that was a thing that Caesar was called. Caesar was called the son of God, and his promise was, "I'll make peace by the sword." Like I make peace because I kill everyone who disagrees with me. And so, Jesus, when Jesus comes and says, "You know, I'm the son of God," he's offering an alternative political statement, which which says. No, there's another way. There's another way to be human. There's another way to be at peace with one another. It's a way of love. And so this thing that has just become a checkoff point of like, oh yeah, do you believe these, you know, list of things so that you can be in this club? Well, that was like completely not the point. And so like, that's just one example out of many where I, I totally agree, Ben. I think the more that you know about the audience, the more that you know about what it would have meant to them, I guess the more interesting it is. And I mean... I think it can be uh, maybe a clue as to why it has endured. One of the things that I really enjoy about how you guys are discussing the value of how you read scripture and about context, for me personally, this podcast has been really challenging for me. You know, what are our thoughts on the Bible? At my current place in my deconstruction and reconstruction with my spirituality, my faith, it, it was really challenging for me because at this point, I'm not 100% sure I am opposed to the idea of Scripture being a person's spiritual bedrock or foundation, so long as their view of what Scripture is seems to fit through a pretty good litmus test of, are you reading it for context? Are you reading it as a person's view, as a time frame's view, as a, as a screenshot, as a snapshot of a specific time, place, location, um, political setting? So I definitely am at a place right now where I think I'm okay with the idea of somebody using scripture as a very fundamental thing and not just a, a street sign, so long as they're reading it in a way that is contextually, I don't know if contextually accurate is the right way, I don't know if contextually authentic is the right way to say it, but they're reading it through uh, the context of the time it was written. You know, So for me, as of right now, just with where I'm at in this exact moment, I'm not sure where I sit on the fence of, yeah, it should just be a street sign pointing one direction. It shouldn't be bedrock or it's okay to be bedrock. I think for me personally is it's, let's start with this exact question. What do you believe that the Bible is? Cool. Well, let's go in the next question then. So next question is, is it true? Which is of course a very loaded question. Feel free to unpack that any way you guys would like to. So I think to bring it back to like its historical context, because I am almost not even interested in even talking about whether or not the Bible's true, divorced from context. Like every piece is borrowed from something that the audience would have already been familiar with. Well, almost like almost every piece. So like, is it true? Parts of it would have been true to the people that it was written to. So, so here's a scenario. We don't know who, well, depending on how assertive you want to get, we don't know who actually wrote the Pentateuch, like the first five books of the Bible. Traditional authorship goes to Moses, but there's a lot of references to Mesopotamia and like Babylonian imagery that wouldn't really have existed at the time that Moses was writing, had he actually written it. 
So there's a huge debate even on the authorship of the foundational part of the Bible. Like there's, there is no Bible without those first five books. Like everything goes back to that. Now, so I think the, the question about whether or not it's true, I think you can look at it in one way, like Devin, like the way that you would describe like a pretty literal interpretation of, of the Bible is, or literal interpretation of inspiration is God is reaching like into a person, <laughs> um, <laughs> removing their humanity and, and guiding their hand to the point where they have no agency and God's literally penning those thoughts. Like that's a very conservative, it's a very conservative way of looking at how the Bible was written. And we, somebody in that scenario would look at all of those stories and think this had to be true. This is like where you start having to do like some of the mental gymnastics, like we don't have good evidence that hundreds of thousands of people wandered around the desert for 40 years. <laughs> um, the other way of looking at that is to say that those books were written during Babylonian exile so while the Jewish people are captured by a world power, well, that makes everything that they're talking about in oral history. Now, that's not like a, that, that's not eyewitness accounts of what happened. That's story being told down from generation to generation for, at that point, like a dozen generations during the time of their capture. But would we look at, at would we look at oral tradition and say that that's not true? Uh, Maybe like if we have oral traditions like in our like in our modern society, like we'd probably look and say like, well, that's not true, but it still means something. So I think truth is more meaning when it comes to answering the question: Is the Bible true? I don't I don't think that a lot of well, maybe not a lot of the things, but I don't think that everything that the Bible describes like happened in the way that it says it does, because it doesn't really make sense taking the material seriously to interpret it that way. And I think if you do, then there's a lot of mental gymnastics that you have to that you have to do to make everything continue to work. So is it is it true? I don't know if it's true. Parts of it probably are. Like looking at it from a Western perspective, like scientifically, parts of it are probably true, but it still means it still gives its audience a frame of reference for their existence, if that makes sense. Did it really happen? Maybe, maybe not. But my thought is that it doesn't really matter because it's true. I think it speaks to a truth much deeper than historical or scientific fact because those things aren't even the point. I think what you said about it being more meaning is right on. I think that if the Bible were so one-dimensional as to just record events exactly as they happened, it wouldn't be so incredible a text with such a universal application. But I do think that the Bible does accurately record some events and not others, sort of like what you were saying, Will. So I do think that some things really did happen. But my faith doesn't rest on the historical accuracy. The point of Genesis 1 isn't to say something literal, it's to say something about who God is or how humanity thought of God. And realizing that I don't have to defend the Bible for its historic accuracy or its scientific accuracy was just such a weight lifted. So freeing. So I like that. Yeah. That's... Well, I was going to say, that's not even like... That's not even faithful to, 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 I think, to try to make it work literally is, Uh, is because you need... 
you need things to be black and white. Like you, there's, there's not an element of, uh, there's not an element of trust. And I think if you're, if you need everything in the Bible to be true like that, then I think that there's probably something else going on. And I think for a lot of people, they just don't know any better because this is like what a lot of us were, I feel like I was kind of taught this, that we need, we need that to be true or because if it's not true, like the way it says it is, then like nothing else is trustworthy. And that perspective, I think, I don't think I realized until I was out of it, like how much that had stunted me (laughs) Um, in being able to find meaning in it. I don't, I don't know if that, does, does that make sense? Like there's, like you can't, you can't be faithful with something that you need to be black and white. Yeah. It's, yeah it turns it into a legal document. I don't know a single person who actually takes every word literally. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Like even the strongest inerrantist that I can think of yeah. would agree that there's some metaphor in there. Mm-hmm. Like okay, now let's talk about why one thing is a metaphor and why one thing is not. Right, yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think about the part where you're talking about mental gymnastics and stuff, but let me step back. When you mention that it's not a faithful way to read the text, when when it has to be flawless, there is no aspect of faith, you know, where Scripture describes faith as believing in things that are unseen, as it's have belief in something that is mysterious. If it has to be a flawless document that is scientifically accurate thousands of years before the age of reason, there's no mystery. You've just removed the mystery, which is a key component to faith, is belief in the face of of mystery. What you got, Andy? Literally all I had for this is, is Harry Potter true? Which is just getting at the exact same thing which you guys are talking about, which that there it's it's more much more about it's much more about meaning making um, than it is about actual facts. And honestly, I just think that's a more interesting way to read it. Like I like why to yeah, I think sometimes the fact finding mission can just be an enormous exercise in missing the point. You know, <laughs> like you just are we're so worried about like, did Jonah actually get swallowed by an enormous fish? Like, is this physically possible? Can we work it out? And you're like, oh, we forgot. The whole point of the story is like, can you love your enemy? Like, can can like that? It's like the the, the writer is literally banging their head against something. Just being like, oh my God, I'll take the fish out of the story if that helps. <laughs> All right, now we're now we're on to the big one. This is a big question, you guys. So when everyone gets hung up on, is the Bible inerrant? What does inerrant mean? We've said it a bunch, but I, we've yet to define it. Yep, that's a great question. Inerrant basically means without error. Big fancy word means without error. Whenever I hear inerrancy or growing up, whenever I heard inerrancy, it was basically the divine hand of God or the divine voice of God dictating into the ears of men who wrote it down. That's what inerrancy was described as, or that was a proof given as to why it was inerrant. I don't think that the Bible is inerrant. And 
I spent a lot of my life thinking it was because I was told it was and trying to wrestle with it. And the problem with it is, is that when you look at the Bible as an inerrant document, you can kind of start coming out on that side because of all of the meaning and truth that's in it. So if there's this much truth, if there's this much meaning, if there's this much profundity in it, then clearly it must be inerrant. It's easy for those two things to be conflated inappropriately. And as I've grown, I've realized that it's not inerrant, right? So you look at the story of Legion, the person that was possessed by several demons that called themselves Legion. It shows up in three of the Gospels. In two of the Gospels, it is pretty similar. The accounts are close enough that you can reasonably say, yeah, they're not identical, but they're close enough to say this is the same event. In one of the other Gospels, I want to say it's Luke, but I could be wrong. But in one of the other Gospels, Legion isn't a single, isn't a man who's possessed by multiple demons. It's actually two men that are possessed by multiple demons. That means that at least one of these accounts is wrong. Like potentially two of the accounts are wrong. So there are flaws in the scripture. So I don't believe it's inerrant. I don't believe it's flawless, but I also don't believe that that's the point. So is it inerrant? I think inerrancy is actually the wrong word to use. I don't think the goal of the book is to present a historically accurate and scientifically accurate account. I think it's much more a wisdom text. And I kind of grabbed that from from Peter Enns as kind of the primary way that he looks at it. And I like that. It's a book about wisdom and experience. So I can hear people saying, well, that just means you have a low view of Scripture. I don't know if you guys have heard that <laughs> thrown at you before. So some might say this means I have a low view of Scripture as opposed to a high view. Like somehow I'm not treating it with the respect or seriousness that it deserves. But I don't think that's true. Because treating it with the respect that it deserves in that context is disrespecting the styles that it was written in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think this view actually treats the Bible with more respect, like ex- exactly like it was designed, how it was supposed to be read, which is not like a rule book or a science or history textbook, uh, but as a record of the journey and experience of others in their own pursuit of the divine, and additionally an invitation for us to participate in that. I'm not sure there's really a more serious way to look at it than that. Beyond that, I think anyone who would say that I don't have a high view of Scripture has already made the Bible their absolute foundation, and as I've already said, I don't think the book can really support that. And so for anyone who would kind of challenge me on that, my question to them, I guess I would ask them to examine if they have a high enough view of Christ, and why is Christ not the foundation of their faith? Kind of like what you were saying earlier, Will, is like, okay, There's the written word, which is the Bible, word of God, but then the Bible talks about the word being the Logos, being Christ, being Jesus. So why are we not focused there? Like you said, kind of, we're we're looking at the wrong thing, we're focused on the wrong thing. Does the Bible contain any error? It depends. Andy, to your point with Harry Potter, like, okay, does any story contain error from the viewpoint of its author? Did the parables that Jesus told, were they, did they have errors in them or were they not true? To look at it that way misses the entire point. 
And then one more distinction that I want to make, I, I think there's a difference between kind of a naive inerrancy and maybe a more robust inerrancy. A naive inerrancy would say that every word is true in every sense, whereas a more robust inerrancy would say that every word is true in some sense. I think that a, another way to frame that would be that every word brings truth. Would be a more robust and accurate form of quote-unquote inerrancy. Yeah, it could be philosophical or scientific or historical or all of those or one of those or some other thing, but it's true in some sense. And I certainly find myself leaning that direction a lot of the time, but that having been said, I'm certainly not attached to it. So you and I talked about this the other uh, yesterday uh, in you know when we were discussing how we've been preparing and I'd love to hear you kind of explain a little bit more about how much would you say that your your view, the you know, that some people would call a low view of scripture, would you say that that's given you a more profound experience with scripture, a more rich experience with it? Or would you say that it's given you uh, a less of a rich experience with scripture? No, I definitely think it's given me a richer experience. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Yeah. I feel the exact same way. When I look at scripture, it's taken on layers of meaning in ways that I never expected it to. When I I think in the Western culture, we created a problem for ourselves, right? Whenever Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the door and we suddenly got Protestantism, we let go of a lot of our connection to the papal legacy. So scripture is now the only thing that we in the Protestant world had to stand on. So one thing I thought was interesting was learning a little bit about when this conversation even started. like. No one was talking about inerrancy until really pretty recently. And from what I understand, it came as sort of a reaction to us understanding a little bit more scientifically. So we, you know, we could start to say things with some assurance of like, hey, I don't think, I don't think that story is literal because I think we can kind of prove it's not. And then all of a sudden there was this big reaction it was like a double down of you know you had to you had to kind of show your id of like well do you still despite our latest scientific findings will you still claim that the bible is inerrant or whatever so like the the whole context of the conversation is weird because there's a there's a huge anxiety under it there's a huge tribalism under it and like this almost false dichotomy of are you on science's side or are you on the Bible side? Which is a weird way for us to like take in information. Next question. Is it inspired? Which is kind of the same thing. Is it, is it God-breathed, right? It was talking about Second Timothy three sixteen. One of those Timothys. One of those Timothys. All scriptures God breathed. 
There are multiple Timothys. I was like, well, what are those two? Yeah, there's, there's two. There's two of them. <laughs> Terrible Bible college student. So what do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it inspired and or God-breathed? All right, I'll kick this one off. Um, so yeah, so in Timothy, yeah, there's a reference to all scripture being God-breathed. Um, and I think that phrase is really interesting to me. Like, because, you know, breath is so connected to the idea of of life. And I, I kind of take that to mean that there is more going on than just the pieces, the pages, the stories. There's a spirit underneath that's saying something about what it means to be human. So in if, if that's what we're saying in that way, yes, um, I think it's inspired. It's God breathed a lot like I am and a lot like you are. Uh, and a lot like the music of Sleeping at Last or the comedy of Hassan Minaj. Like I would at this point in my life say all of those things are God breathed. And I love that. Um, actually, Rob Bell says at the end of What is the Bible, which is a great book to read if you're interested in this topic. <laughs> uh, he says the Bible is a library of books written by people trying to figure it out, wrestling with their demons, doubting, struggling, doing what they could to bring a little light to the world. And yet these books have been breathed into showing us what redemption looks like giving us hope, insisting that people like you and me can actually do our part to heal, repair, and restore this world we call home. And that is inspiring. I think that everything is inspired uh, in the sense that we are all image bearers of God, that we are all made in the image of God and we are all breathed the breath of life. I think that everything is inspired in that regard. I think that the baggage that comes with the scripture of, is it the inspired word of God? I don't think that's what we're actually saying. I think we're actually saying, or at least culturally what I grew up in, is is it the dictated word of God? And yeah, I, I don't think it's that. But I definitely think it's all inspired by God, just like you said. Like, man, I'm going to steal that. Like, the comedy of, you know, Hassan Minaj is inspired by it. Like, Neil deGrasse Tyson is inspired by it. You know, like, it's it's all inspired by God because it all has that breath of soul that only our species contains. Yeah, man, that's so good. I'm glad you said that because when I thought about that question— I'm choosing to interpret it in that in that very life-giving way, right? Because it could, you know, but I I do have that memory of when when you talked about the inspired word of God, that was a more limiting term than it was an invitation to to play with it, you know, to imagine what that could mean. And yeah, I would also say like there's a lot of portions of the Bible that I don't find inspiring. And that's okay. You know what I mean? Like the reason I can say that is because I feel like saying something is breathed by the source of being means it's full of struggle and means it's full of mess and beauty and hope all at the same time. So I'm comfortable saying, nah, Paul, I'm like not on board with the way that you talk about women. I'm just going to take a pass on that. And that can still be part of it. That's part of it, right? But like, I think until you can really find the beauty of divinity in the mess of humanity, there's not that ability to love it and also think critically about it and move 
in a different direction maybe than something that was written you know not to see it so much as a a a manual but as a like a record of struggle yeah well and i think that like the way that you're viewing it that choice that you're intentionally making i think it lines up a lot more with jewish tradition about breath and inspiration you know inspire it's a word that comes from breathing. Like it, the inside the word inspire is breathing, right? Respire, inhale, exhale. These all come from similar roots. And uh, you look at the tradition where the name of God wasn't a name. Whenever God appeared to Moses, it was the sound of breathing. And when you think about that, yeah, it's breathed life into, that it's not that we weren't these puppets on a string. We're not marionettes. We were breathed life into us. And from that, we then go off and create, make new, do our own things. We are our own identities with it. So the breath of life, the inspiration of God isn't a all-consuming, complete, dictated thing. It's just a piece of it. It's just a piece of the story that we are then taking into ourselves, running with and reproducing something else. Like it's so much more like the inspiration and the breath of God is so much more of a relational piece where it's just where God's just a part of the story and we're an even bigger part of the story because we're the ones that are running with that breath. I think that while I well, those are the intentional choices you make, I think to me, with what I understand about Jewish culture, about, you know, uh, the origins of the name Yahweh, about all of that thing, and it, looking at a, a Jewish writer uh, who's inspired by similar traditions, I feel like your intentional choice actually puts you way more in line with what that author could have been saying. And man, is it beautiful. And, oh man, that's good stuff, dude. Yeah, is the Bible inspired? I would say yes, just like a lot of things. <laughs> is it God-breathed? Isn't everything? At some point, I would have had to answer previously that, yeah, the Bible is definitely inspired. It, it is God-breathed. But the idea that I had was that God had dictated to humans, like what exactly what it was that God wanted us to know. Um, now I look at inspiration more. I tend to think of it, this is going to be total blasphemy to people, but I would look at the idea of inspiration now similar to the way that Carl Sagan wrote, like, the Pale Blue Dot. Mm. Um that dude was a poet. Yeah. It's like, it's one of, yeah. Carl Sagan was inspired by an image of the earth so much that he wrote, <laughs> like, beautiful poetry about it. But the earth didn't make him do that. It was because he was so in love with that idea that he decided to do something about it. He decided to pen those thoughts. And a lot of people were blessed by it. It's been healthier for me to see it that way. I guess if you had to get down to it, for the, everybody who thought that that was blasph- like blasphemy, 
Carl Sagan came from the earth, and so in a roundabout way, you could say that the earth uh, wrote that about itself. And so if, uh, yeah. if you need the, <laughs> if you need God to have written the Bible about himself, I, it works with that metaphor. It's a bit of a stretch, but <laughs> yeah. All right. A couple more questions to wrap it up. Is the Bible important to you? And do you think it should be important to other people? I don't read it very much anymore, but it is important to me. It's been pretty foundational to how I think. I think my process over the last few years has been a chipping away of the things that don't really work for me. I know that that sounds like flimsy hippie stuff to to some people, but I don't really care anymore. I definitely think it should be important to other people. I think if you have no familiarity with it, I'm not really exactly sure how I think it should be important, other than there are people out there who find it really important. So to that extent, don't totally shit on it because by extension, you're doing that to a lot of people who do find that really important. I think that I, that's a struggle that I definitely have with myself. But yeah, I, I think it, I think it should be important to, to other people partially because it documents a decent amount of like human, human history, not necessarily like in a true historical sense, but it's, um, important to engage with it because at least in the West, like it's been very foundational to our own, to our own culture, good or bad. A lot of our own culture doesn't really make sense without the Bible. And a lot of the Bible doesn't really, well, a lot of what we think the Bible is doesn't really make sense without our own culture. Um, so I think simply just being more conversant with that makes living a little easier or it makes making sense of living a little easier. So there's some really good stuff about the character of Jesus. So think that that's applicable whether or not you think it's true (laughs) at the very least there's something to learn from him yeah so I think uh similarly I've gone through different phases you know it was incredibly important to me as a kid as a teenager I had like the same bible that my pastor gave to me for like a decade you know just carried around falling apart in this weird case that zippered up on the sides like you do. <laughs> no, mine was like a fish situation, but either way, yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, it was it was everything at that point and taken taken, you know, very literally, very seriously in that way, um, which had positive and negative effects. And then I would say the Bible was also important to my faith shifting so drastically like I think it's because of some of those painful discrepancies that you'll see in the Bible and I'm not talking about like specific historical facts I'm talking about like themes major themes like okay God is okay with commanding uh, genocide of a people in the Old Testament and then Jesus shows up and teaches us to love our enemies what are we supposed to do with that sort of God who can't agree with their their own ideas. So so I would say the Bible was also important in my in my deconstruction of faith, in my starting to to leave the way that I used to see things behind. Um, it certainly sped that up. And then I would say at this point, I'm with you, Willen, that I I had to I took I took a long break from reading anything from the Bible at all. I'm still 
that's still kind of me at this point. You know, it's like it'll come up now and then, but more in, you know, books that other, it'll show up in other books that I'm like interested in in some way or something. You know, the latest Richard Rohrer has a lot of Bible reference, but it's not actually reading the Bible. Yeah, I think at this point it is important to me in a completely different way. Like I'm not asking it to give me certainty anymore. I certainly don't want to use it to prove anyone wrong about anything anymore. Yeah, I think I think at this point, you know, I want to I want to be able to find wisdom in it, beauty in it. I want to see the invitation to incarnated love. And I'll say just honestly, I'm still like warming up to that. Like that's a hope for me is that I'll like once again relate to the Bible in that kind of a way. But I think I'm still in that phase of just feeling a little shell-shocked from like that, <laughs> you know, like you need some, we needed, some, we needed a break. Yeah. Me and the Bible were on a break. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think I, that's how I hope to relate to it in the future. That's my ideas about it. And, um, we'll see how that goes. So that stage that you're in right now also doesn't feel permanent to you? No, I don't think so. Honestly, I know that there were things about my faith that caused trauma to me that I'm working out in therapy. So returning to any of those texts that contain ideas that even I don't think about those ways anymore, that can be a really difficult thing to do at this moment. So I don't, I don't do a lot of that. I kind of like let that have some space. And I hope that like, as I continue to heal, I'll be able to return to the Bible having had enough distance from those toxic lenses that I could appreciate the beauty without having to do so much mental filtering mm -hmm. of like damaging material. Does that make sense? My turn. Is the Bible important to me? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's part of my spiritual inheritance and I've not personally encountered a reason to give it up or to distance myself from it. I haven't had any trauma that I need to work through in order to interact with it, but I know a lot of other people have had trauma, and I do feel really sensitive to those for who it's been a really difficult or untrustworthy source so whenever I'm using the Bible, I just I try to be really, really sensitive to that. Should it be important to other people? Maybe. I would really love if it was. Um, but I would feel a whole lot more confident saying yes if it hadn't been weaponized to do so much damage. You know, I found life in it, and my hope would be that others would too. But to say that my experience is or should be reflective of everyone else's would just be absurd. I'd like to think that if we could separate the Bible from all of its baggage, then everyone would find wisdom in it, but that's just not the world we live in. I would say that to me, up until very recently, that the Bible was not important anymore for exactly those reasons. of my church memories are tainted by toxic distortions of scripture. So a lot of my memories are about how it was inappropriately used. For example, right now, 
I am actually in a in a Tuesday night Bible study. So I am going to a Bible study and we're going through James. And in James 1, James talks about your faith, about being steadfast in your faith. Because somebody who doubts is like a ship being tossed at the sea, right? And that scripture was used in my childhood to really, really combat any questions I had. Because if I was asking questions, it meant that I was doubting. So it was really used in harmful ways to shut me down. In fact, you know, I, as I start down this path of memory lane, I end up very quickly in the numerous Sunday school classes where I was not allowed to ask questions or strongly encouraged not to ask questions. And so it was one of those things that I had to strip away all of the toxicity that people had imposed onto the scripture. So when I am in this Bible study, and this is like maybe three weeks ago, I'm in this Bible study and uh, we come back to that scripture and oh my goodness, we're talking about it. And when you read James chapter one, that is not the main point of James chapter one. Well, yet again in this Bible study, we're aggressively focusing on the, the one verse that says, don't doubt. And I'm having a really hard time because it's triggering me. It's taking me back to all those memories of toxicity, of awful stuff. And as I continue through it and as I've thought about that verse for the last few weeks, I realize, you know what? When I strip away all the toxic junk, yeah, it's true. If you have tons of doubt, you feel like you're being tossed at sea. So try not to have doubt. Maybe not that questions aren't bad, but try not, but, but I guess a better way to look at it is trusting that God will get you through it. All right, I can see how that would make the seas calmer. But you know what? I'm not there right now. I'm not in that place where I can't doubt. I'm not in that place where I can just have the type of faith that I want to have. And in that moment, I was reminded of the scripture where Jesus is in the bottom of the boat during a storm. And all the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, what the hell? There's a storm going. And he comes up there and is like, I don't know why you guys are being so upset, calms the storm and then goes back to bed. And so for me, it was this really beautiful moment that is helping to reinvigorate and re-excite scripture in my life. Because as I looked at James and I said, you know what? It's right. If you doubt, you feel like you're a ship being tossed at the sea amidst the waves. However, Jesus for me has always been this thing that can calm the seas. So it's cool if I have doubts because Jesus is capable of calming and taming those doubts. And in that, I thought back to scripture. I thought back to other verses that I've already stripped away all that toxicity, all that garbage and BS that was superimposed onto it. And now scripture is coming alive in the ways that like you were describing, Andy, that I was hoping I didn't really believe it was ever going to come alive for me again, but it's starting to because I've stripped away so much of the junk that we were that was put on it in my life that now it's becoming important again. And so I'm finding a connection to it where I'm starting to enjoy reading scripture again in ways that I had only hoped I would and truly had stopped believing that I would ever want to read it again. But as I've started coming back to it, 
um, through this Bible study, it's it's becoming much more profound again. It's becoming much more beautiful, much more intimate, much more exciting. And it's cool because it's I'm experiencing an invigoration that I, I don't know if I ever experienced when I was younger. Anyways. Alrighty, last question. What do you do with it? All right, well, I'll go first on this one and then we can kind of go around. And I'll start with kind of talking about what I don't do with the Bible. And a lot of this we've kind of said already before, so I won't dwell on it super long. A lot of people place emphasis on the Bible as being the Word of God, but I think that the written Word has really become the only Word, as it were, and I prefer to focus my attention on what the Bible calls the Word, which is the living Word, the Logos, and that is Christ. So I don't use the Bible as the singular authority by which I live my life. Protestant Christians have been trying that for hundreds of years, and it doesn't work out as well as you think it might, which means this is probably a good time to talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I'll talk about that just really briefly, but then actually talk about Richard Rohr's version, which, surprise, surprise, I actually like better. (laughs) So the Wesleyan quadrilateral is comprised of four sources of authority. There is tradition, reason, experience, and scripture. And scripture gets weighted more heavily than the others, but they're all there, and it takes all four to live a balanced life of faith. What Richard Rohr does with his version is to turn it into more of a triangle. So you have three parts. You have scripture, tradition, and experience. He leaves out reason because... He says that's just how you navigate between the use of the other three. But importantly, in this model, experience is the big one out of the three. It's not scripture. And if the model, he actually uses the example of a tricycle. If the model is a tricycle, experience is the front wheel. It's the one you steer with. And I really, really like thinking about it that way. So scripture is a part of it. It's not even the main one. I think experience probably is. So... I will say that when I hear something about spirituality or the divine or spiritual practice or anything like that, the Bible is usually the first place that I go to to see if I can find it there or some sort of attachment or connection to it. And more often than not, I do actually find what I'm looking for. And when I do, it usually opens up the text in a different way. And I see it with new eyes and something I hadn't considered before. But I'll also say that while the Bible is the first place I usually go to find something, deep in me, typically there's something that suspects whether that thing is true or not already before I even go into the Bible. And if I don't find what I'm looking for in Scripture, that doesn't mean it's not true. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Uh, I don't believe that the Bible contains a comprehensive compilation of all of the truth that there is in the world. I don't remember the last time that I actually did anything with the Bible. <laughs> How does that feel? I, I don't know. It feels weird. Like I'm like I have this like weird grin on my face as I'm saying that. Most recently, like in the last couple of years, I, the Bible has pretty much been a ground of like meditation for me. And in the last five years, anything that I would do with the Bible during that time, if I wasn't like teaching like for my job from it, I would pretty much just spend wisdom literature, partially because I feel like that's some of the most like indisputably 
relevant to most people, parts of the Bible, like the Psalms, Proverbs. I always found comfort in the wisdom literature. I always found like meditating on Psalms to be like therapeutic. So my approach to the Bible has been pretty, I don't know, maybe pragmatic in the last several years, but in a different, like in a different way than how it was when I was younger. Pragmatism from the Bible would have been going to the Bible to look for answers for whatever issue I was dealing with. It's been a long time since I've thought about the Bible like that. Not really, I don't really see it as providing answers. I see it as providing a sort of a hub for for my life. However, due to like what Andy had mentioned earlier, like with needing to take a break, like I feel like I'm nearing the tail end of just a long break with that. And I feel... I feel fine with that. Like it feels, it feels weird um, because this was a book that I oriented my entire life around for a long time. And it was the book that I thought was the most important thing that had ever been created for most of my life. And then I've pretty much just, you know, more or less ignored, if not all of it, most of it in my daily life for the better part of a couple of years. And I think I don't know, Andy, maybe to answer your question more succinctly, I think it feels healthy. (laughs) Um, I think what I've done with it has felt necessary. I don't feel bad. I don't feel guilty about it. I think if I was in a group of church people, I'd probably feel guilty, but that would be me projecting what I think they're thinking about me onto me rather than what I think is actually true about my experience with that. I haven't had the urge to tell other people about it in a while. (laughs) Like yo, you should read the Bible and and anything remotely evangelical, like to the true sense of the word, I think hasn't been a part of my life in in quite some time. So what I do with the Bible now, uh, well, as I shared, I do participate in a Bible study. And so I am now spending more time getting back into reading scripture. I recently had the opportunity to speak uh, or do a short message during uh, communion and spent some time looking into scripture and connecting with scripture. And since then, my big takeaway has been uh, coming from more of a meditative and contemplative state of looking at my life and my spiritual experiences and really trying to focus on a more healthy way of connecting to my own spiritual experiences, stepping away from what other people have superimposed on it, stepping back into my own experiences with mysticism, with the divine And the scriptures that have been most inspirational for that connection have been the Psalms of celebrating God's goodness in my life and its history, celebrating even the goodness amidst the toxic, uh, malforming parts of it. I'm excited about the freedom that I've experienced with looking at scripture in a through new lenses. And the new lenses that I'm seeing have been so beneficial, so beautiful, so helpful to my marriage, to my family, uh, that as I'm reintegrating myself back into reading scripture, and I'm desiring to 
integrate myself. It's less of a guilt motivated thing and more of an, and I just want to start experiencing this again, but I am moving very cautiously because there's a ton of baggage, a ton of wounds, a ton of stuff that, you know, like Andy said, that I've gone through with a therapist, with counseling and, and, and stuff like that. So, uh, cautiously, uh, but I'm starting to dip my toes back in the water. I think it'd be, um, I think it would be difficult to overstate the damage done in the name of the Bible. Um, you know, whether you're talking about perpetuating a patriarchal culture, whether you're talking about violence done, um, justified in the name of the Bible, certainly, um, exclusion towards the LGBTQ community. And that's just scratching the surface, you know? Um, so I think to be honest, what I do with it at this point is that I hope I let it affect who I am in a way that makes me the kind of person who stands in solidarity with the people who are hurt by it. You know, I, I let this, the narrative of Jesus and the way he moved while he was on the planet change me into the sort of person who can come alongside people who are hurt, people who have been severely damaged or speak truth to power and oppose systems that are really causing suffering in the world. That's kind of my, that's all I really care about in terms of the Bible anymore. I'm with you, Will. There's nothing in me that wants to promote it as something that people just need to read for the sake of it. But I hope it changes me into the kind of person that's better at coming alongside people who are hurting. Searching the whole ocean, wondering if the skies would clear. Treading softly in slow motion, but I think the time is near. But I think the time is near to that'll do it for this episode thank you so much for listening see you next time